It's an honor to have Dr. Steve Smith with us today. Steve is an author and church growth specialist. He's been working interculturally in Florida for the last 20 years. It's great to have you with us today, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Sammy? I am doing well myself. It's been a, an early day. I had to go get blood work super early. So, oh. uh, yeah. But nonetheless, I don't want to digress. So, uh, right. Steve, just uh, give us give us just uh, some some uh, information as far as what you have been up to. Uh, you know, you are the former uh, executive minister for Convert Southeast, and uh, you know, just let us know into this new venture that you have uh, you have began your journey on. Yeah, thank you for asking. I had. Uh about 15 years of overseeing churches from Louisiana to St. Croix and the Caribbean, and 60% of my churches were non-Anglo, so I had a lot of different interactions with people whose culture is very different from mine, and uh, they they taught me a lot, and it was exciting to see all that, but you know, I finally got to the point where I felt that God was calling me to something more specific, I have a passion for transformational discipleship and training churches how to integrate that into their church systems. And so for the last two years almost, I launched out with a organization called Church Equippers, uh, which allows me to continue to live in the same home I lived in for the last 25 years. And mm-hmm. I have uh, traveled to California, Vermont, and to England with this, and uh, God is just opening doors all over the place for me. Uh, mostly I'm working with smaller churches. I, I call them the 85%. Those are churches that are 200 people in attendance or less, which makes up, of course, 85% of all churches in America. And uh, quite often their pastors don't have the training or they don't have the resources to get the training. Uh, and I'm reaching out to them saying, I want to help you because I believe that God has given us a great opportunity to reach this generation with the gospel. And a lot of churches are just strategically located but ineffective in their outreach. That's really where my my focus is at this point in my ministry. Wow. You had mentioned something. You said uh, spiritual transformation. Uh, can you unpack that for us? You know, for some people, they may not know what that means. Uh, you know, sometimes jargon, we can get locked in that. So can you unpack spiritual transformation for us? Certainly. Uh, over 20 years ago, God took me, well, actually, no, 20 years ago, boy, it seems like a long part of my life, uh, God took me through a transformational moment where I became aware of unfinished business in my life, things that had gone all the way back to my childhood that I had never addressed or surrendered to God for healing and as a result of that, I have been comforting myself with uh, sin choices inside, which were destroying me and my family and ministry. And out of that experience, I began to disciple others in what I call the transformational truth of the gospel, which is essentially that God changes us by his power from the inside out. Uh, this involves the presence of the spirit and keeping in step with the spirit. Instead of trying to reform myself to look like Jesus, God transforms me into his likeness. And 
I've been teaching this uh, at a lot of different levels. I believe it's a discipleship issue. I don't think it's a counseling issue. Quite often that's when we sometimes pull this out and say, well, you crashed and burned, let's help you put your life back together. I believe that we should be teaching people from the moment they start following Jesus how to keep in step with the Spirit, how to surrender what's unfinished inside of them, uh, all the wounds and traumas from their past or they will accumulate over their lifetime, and also the sin that they have chosen to comfort themselves so that they uh, don't give place to the stronghold of the enemy. And uh, this is a lifelong process. This is what uh, my terminology is for transform. I mean, excuse me, for sanctification. That God transforms us. And uh, so that's what I'm doing. That's a lot of where my passion is. Well, is there any people can get a hold of, uh, you know, anything concerning what you just spoke about as far as uh, spiritual transformation is concerned. I know you've written certain books, uh, and since right. this is what you call your passion, is there anything out there that you've that you've put out for people to learn about spiritual transformation? Well, I have written a number of books. The one that uh, we uh, use for training is called The Key to Deep Change, and then there is a small group experience that goes along with it. The small group experience is focused on helping to create what I call confessional communities within the church where people are learning how to surrender to God and confess their sins and to encourage one another instead of judging one another. Uh, all of this training is available through my website, which is at uh, com, and uh, there you go and you are not only exposed to the books that I've written, but also we have uh, video training on uh, for people who say, I'd really like to learn how to do this. Um, some of that hasn't yet been posted. It will be posted in the next month. And, you know, this is a, a way of reaching into churches that say we don't have the resources for this kind of thing. I believe that every church has the ability to do this. And we, I find after people go through this, they say, I, I, I have never really understood this relationship, this intimacy that God has given us to pursue it with him and uh my life's been changed and and or i'm seeing people's lives change and it's just amazing to me uh i find those kinds of reports very encouraging because that tells me that we're accomplishing what we set out to do sometimes people when they talk to me about this they're uh they're wondering you know is this biblical and i said this is the most biblical aspect uh of what i do because it's really focused on the gospel and what the gospel really is all about. When Jesus says that there's good news, it means not just merely that we're coming to faith and being miserable until we die and go to heaven. It <laughs> means the good news is right now God is changing us and giving uh, giving us hope and love and power that we never thought we would experience. We thought that was reserved for just special people. It's for everyone that changed the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, I'm so excited about the key to deep change, and uh, I uh, hope that uh, the people that are listening to us today uh, will go out and get it. I think that it is something that's necessary, especially when we uh, speak about racism, when we talk about implicit racial bias, when we talk yes. about what justice looks like, and when we are pursuing reconciliation. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard for us to get over things, and, and that's something that I want to uh, talk about as we 
as we press on with this with this uh, show today. Uh, I'm going to go yeah. ahead and, and start. Uh, okay. You know, the 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 show that I've started is called Let's Talk About It. It's an ongoing conversation about implicit racial bias, justice, mm-hmm. and the pursuit of reconciliation. And so, my first question for you, Steve. Uh, have you ever seen or experienced implicit racial bias? Oh, my goodness. Well, I grew up in the segregated South. Uh, I was born in the 50s, early 50s, and so and, and in Virginia. And so I lived through the last part of the Jim Crow era when the black codes were very restrictive for African-Americans. And when I went to school, I didn't have any African-American classmates. Uh, uh, Even though this was after uh, the Supreme Court ruling, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, and uh, the reason why is Virginia had come up with a a system of keeping segregation alive. And what they did is they sent out a letter before the school year to every parent in the area – and saying, here's your school choices in your area. And there was a black school and there was a white school, and all the parents knew which school that they were supposed to send their kids to. Now, the black schools were underfunded and um, probably understaffed as well. But the fact was is that the black parents knew that their kids were supposed to go to the black school if they wanted to uh, be safe. And, of course, the white parents sent their kids to the white school and therefore, Virginia could say, see, the parents themselves chose what school mm. their kids were going to. And it's not our fault that they're segregated because the parents want it this way. You know, uh, the, the strange part about this is is that right outside the elementary school that I was going to, there was a chain-link fence all the way around the yard. And just on the other side of that chain-link fence was a black community. Mm. I mean, they were they were just outside the fence so to speak, and yet their kids would not go to our school. Uh, if, uh, they, they were not supposed to go to our school. And so we didn't have classmates until uh, the Supreme Court had to come back and, you know, bring some more decisions and uh, desegregation in my area. So I was almost, uh, you know, almost out of grade school before I ever had a black classmate. And uh, and that would uh, you know and that would continue to be true all the way up through high school. I would have black classmates, but we didn't really know them. You know they mm. they were you know they were uh, uh, you know a group apart from us. Let's just say it that way. And and it wasn't like they were unfriendly totally because they were in the minority in the area I was in. So they didn't uh, you know there wasn't a dominant presence, uh, they were the minority within the white school. Um, mm. But, you know, you you you, re- you realize that, uh, you know, you're growing up and you don't even realize you're prejudiced uh, mm. because it's just so cultural. I, I remember when I was in uh, sixth grade, about 12, uh, a black couple visited our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and immediately after the service, the uh, pastor and some deacons went to visit them in their home and said, you'll be happier going to a church with people of your own kind, whatever that meant. You wow. know, and essentially, you'll be happier with black people. You will not be happy being with other Christians 
because we're different from you. And, uh, you know, and, and here's the thing. Uh, I thought that was, I thought that was normal. You know, because that's the way that I, I don't even know how I learned these, uh, these ideas because my parents were uh, overtly prejudiced in the sense that, you know, they, they were hated blacks or said ugly things about blacks. But, you know, we told black jokes at home, and I believed in the curse of ham. If you're not hmm. familiar with that idea, that, that, that there was a belief and, uh, among uh, people in the South that uh, black people were destined to be slaves because Noah cursed the son of Ham and, and Genesis chapter uh, 9, I believe. And it was just kind of like, well, this is just their fate and it's good for them. And, uh, you know, and, I, and it came out of my mouth. I remember coming out of my mouth just saying, well, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. I don't even know where I learned that. Wow, that is uh, incredible to hear. That's incredible to hear that. It is incredible that that you know people actually you know thought that way, and that somehow it kind of just uh, you know trickled down into a belief system for people. Yeah, yeah, and you, and you don't challenge it because nobody around you is challenging it. Uh, certainly, there were people who talked about it on television, but I didn't see those programs at that point in my life, and. Uh, you know, when I went to college, I didn't go to a, a college where this was going to be uh, a theme of, you know, racial reconciliation, although I have to admit that my college had black students and, uh, and you know, and it wasn't, uh, again, they were in the minority, but it wasn't, you know, I, there's a form of racism that I believe I fell into, well, I definitely know I fell into, which is uh, paternalism. You know, we're here to help these guys because they need so much more help than we do. And that's so wrong. And as, uh, I mean, I look back upon that time with a lot of, of sense of sadness over the way that I thought. And uh, it, it's a very, you know, long journey from there to where I am today uh, because it's hard. And, and this is where we really depend on the Spirit of God. It's hard to humble yourself before God and say, God, strip away all the lies that I that I know. This was a huge lie in my life. And uh, and it took the work of God to even make me see that I had this lie going on in my head and how I interacted with uh, non-Anglos, uh, not just blacks, but others. And, uh, you know, one of the questions you'll have to come to in terms of, um, you know, the, the issue of racial reconciliation or recognizing your prejudice is coming to the point where you say, would I be willing to be led and pastored even by somebody who wasn't an Anglo? Wow. You know, would I submit myself to the spiritual authority over me? I mean, you know, clearly if you work for a place and they put a supervisor over you, uh, that's not an angle. You have to do that because you're paid to do that. Uh, if you uh, go into governmental service, there's going to be non-Anglos over you, and you have to do that if you're going to be a governmental service. But in the church, you can run away from it. Right. You, know, you can right. just say, hey, I'm going to the white church. You know, I'm going, I, mean, I might not say the white church, but I'm going to go to the church where my pastor is an Anglo because I feel most comfortable there. And uh, and you don't have to ever ask yourself, are you really prejudiced? 
Oh, you know, you'd say, no, I'm not prejudiced. No, well, then why are you making these selections? Why would you bypass a church that, you know, is a, 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 a great spiritual church making impact on the community and go past that to a, another church down the street because it's got angles in it like you? Uh, <laughs> and so these are... These are hard questions that only the Spirit of God can really bring home to you, uh, you know, because, because otherwise you're just really not grappling with the issues. You know, you could just be blind to it. Right. Now, uh, you know, just a, a question. Um, we know that historically in the church, racism has uh, been winked at, for, for a lack of a better term, uh, we know that uh, slavery was uh, given the okay nod by, uh, you know, some of our early church fathers, especially here in America in the Western, in the Western sense. Uh, what, yeah. damage, what damage do you think that, uh, uh, you know, racial bias or racism uh, has, has done, especially within the context of the church? Well, I'll tell you that it it, uh, it got so deeply ingrained in the culture. I mean, uh, when you you think about when the first African slaves came to America in 1619, up to the Civil War, that's uh, you know 250 years of a practice and a way of seeing um, African Americans. You don't even realize how much it changed the culture and the way of thinking and the inability to think differently. It's just like it's so natural that we we didn't even consider it a an issue. In fact, when it uh, when it became an issue, and I thank the Lord that uh, the, some of the ones who first brought it up were Quakers. Uh, who began to challenge their, their neighbors about, you know, what are we doing here? But um, who did it hurt? It hurt us all. It hurt the African-Americans but it, because it robbed them of humanity and dignity. And it, ro- and it robbed the Anglos, the whites, of the same kind of human dignity. We became less than what we were. We were treating people like property. And uh, and they had no value beyond the cash register to us. Now that's a little harsh. I, I realize probably people would argue with that and say, "Hey, no, we, you know, my ancestors treated blacks well and all this stuff." But you know what? It was a system of economy. It was about making money. It was about you know the ability to uh, order someone around and make them do what you wanted them to do and uh, own them, and that if you were unhappy with them, you could sell them. And mm-hmm. people did get sold, and families did get broken up. And we had a system of chattel slavery here in um, America that was uniquely ours, uh, you know, it, it compared to other parts of the world who also had slavery. Uh and I'm not saying that we were worse. It was, I'm not saying we were better. It was just a matter of saying this was what we did to ourselves. And it is so ingrained in us from 250 years that even the 100 and 
50 years since this, there are still people who do not see the relationship of their attitude towards what happened in the 1860s uh, to their behavior today. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, you, the, when, when African Americans come up and say, hey, you know, this is what you did to our people, our response is, well, I didn't own any slaves. Right. Uh, you know, I didn't do that. Right. Uh, you know, that's old news. You guys need to get over this. Hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, and this is a very complicated issue, but, but uh, what I'm saying here is that what we did for the 250 years is still ingrained in our collective psyche as, as people who have descended from those who own slaves are were prejudiced against blacks because all prejudice and racism isn't just a southern concept it's a universal white concept that uh you know if you you even in blacks who migrated to the north after the civil war for a uh, better sense of freedom and uh, uh economic opportunity ran into the same kind of prejudice in the north and uh in the west uh, it was almost like it doesn't make any difference where you go. Collectively, we as Anglo's will never see you mm. with with the kind of humanity that you really have the dignity that you deserve. Mm. That, you know, you, you you brought up a great point, and so my my question then is, why can't we tell people who have experienced injustice, uh, you know, due to uh, the color of their skin, why can't we just tell them just forget about it? And forgive those who uh, have committed these injustices against them. Well, the first thing is the irony of those who struggle with denying our, the fact that we're racism, saying to those that we have abused in the past how they should feel. Hmm. Uh, you should feel this way. Why? Uh, you've never been on our side of the fence. Uh, you know, you, you know. here it is. We enslaved you and used you as property and wrung economic gain for ourselves out of you. And then we, after we set you free, which was, a, you know, a huge uh, cost of life, uh, we we came up with uh, Jim Crow laws, the Black Codes, and cut you out economically as much as we could. Certainly politically, uh, we lynched you if you didn't, uh, if, if we felt threatened by you. And, but that's all behind us now, and hmm. you should forgive us. Yeah, it's just it's just the uh, you know I, I believe I speak from. You know, looking out South Africa after the apartheid uh, era, and um, you know they set up a number of commissions for reconciliation, uh, and but those commissions came from the African, the Africans themselves, the Black Africans themselves. They said we need to put this behind us, and they had a plan, and and they worked through it because there were so many wrongs done that it was impossible to make them right. But you mm. see, here's the thing about South Africa versus America. The 
black Africans were always the majority. Mm-hmm. The whites in South Africa were always the minority. They they held the power because of colonial uh, decisions that were made in, in America. The African Americans have always been the minority. They don't have the upper hand, so to speak, at this point, where they can come and say, we need to do this. You know, there's a bill that's been languishing in Congress since 1989 on examining this very issue and reputation uh, that's submitted every year, and it never has gotten to the floor to be voted on. And uh, that that's because we as whites don't want to deal with this. You know, just let it go away. It's It's history now. Uh, and nobody here today has done the harm that uh, that African Americans need us to deal with. And so here we are. You know, we we continually say uh, we should feel differently. And uh, if you know, and 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 we are just, you know, it, this is the insensitivity that we have about the whole issue. Uh, it, individual organizations come along and they say we are sorry. But uh, but the African Americans are looking past the words and saying, so what actions are you taking to show that you really are sorry? Wow. How are you expressing your true forgiveness? This just kind of happened here at the Southern Baptist Convention this year, and uh, they had this um, this um, motion to uh, condemn the alt right white supremacist. Thing and the pastor who brought it up put it on a motion on the floor, and the committee for motions decided they weren't going to put it forth on the floor. Instead of revising it and you know making it uh, a better, stronger motion, because it was a it was a wordsmithing. There were things in there that you know they felt were a little bit too uh, uh, inflammatory. They were just not going to do anything about it at all. And uh, and then of course. A, a number of delegates, just a huge amount of delegates, said, "Hey, we've got to deal with this thing. You know, you just can't let this pass us by." But the stumble that took place there by those who were in the position to make the decision uh, to put the motion forward was well observed by a lot of African American leaders who said, "You know, this, they say that they are sorry about this, but when." Uh, rubber meets the road, I'm not sure they are. They don't understand how important this is to us to stand with us when there are people out there who are saying things that would rob us of our rights if they could get the upper hand. Wow. So uh, I I remember that when uh, the Southern Baptists had their convention that it it just wasn't something that affected them at the convention. It actually made headline news. And so, yes, uh, you know, everybody, everybody began to chime in. So, Steve, my next question would be, uh, what does justice or restitution look like for those who have experienced injustice uh, because of the color of their skin or because of their ethnic origins or nationalities for, for non-whites, uh, to be yeah. more specific? What, what does justice look like for them, in your opinion? Yeah, that that is probably the hardest question that you could possibly ask me because I don't even think within the African and American community they know the answer to this. There is a lot of disagreement, even among themselves. 
but and the thing is, is that it's uh, this is an emotional question more than it is an academic question. You know, the the greatest thing, and on this I speak from the point of view as a believer in Jesus. The greatest thing that could happen just as a first step is if we would come to a place where we have peace with one another, where there really was forgiveness and confession going on between us. And I don't mean just words. I mean true confession, where we own the sins of our fathers and we recognize that we ourselves have been deeply affected by this beginning sin of racism. Uh, Even if we don't want to name it in ourselves, we should we should recognize that it's ingrained into our our very soul how we think. And, uh, you know, and I think that this brings me to something that, you know, I, I, you know, that is often not talked about, but it's, a, but it's an important point, and that is that we are all affected. All cultures, black and white, Latino, all cultures are affected by the fall. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for us to come to the table and say, I need to address my what the fall has done to me and how I am responding to the world around me uh, before I start asking you to deal with the things that are are wrong with you. This is the this the, the, the story that Jesus told about dealing with the log in your own eye before you try to deal with somebody else's boat. Mm-hmm. You know, the little speck in there. I think that all cultures have to come to the table and say, we are broken people. We are. And every culture, every culture we have built is built by people who have been affected by the fall. Uh, whether we're a majority culture, you know, uh, you know, because every, every country has a majority culture and a minority culture going on. And all of them are broken systems built by fallen people. It doesn't make any difference how you construct them or how you reconstruct them. So coming to the issue of justice here, we are broken people coming to the table together, and justice is God's reign, ultimately. Uh, What does God want us to do? And uh, how do we make right generations of wrong? And when you start asking those questions, you you recognize that, 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 that these, all of our cultures have put upon other cultures. Uh, and so how do we, you know, this, this is the ultimate issue. I know that this is far beyond what you're asking me because we're looking at the, the narrow picture of justice here. But this is the bigger issue, that there will be no justice until Jesus reigns ultimately. But when, you, but when you come to this particular thing, I think for some people they see it as a monetary thing. Uh, and I read things like uh, the MAFA uh, sites where they say, hey, you know, reparations, we should receive reparations for all the sins of the slaves, and that ranges from $1.7 to $4 trillion of reparations. There's others that say, hey, we need, you need to give uh, blacks um, free education and uh, no taxes for the next 50 years. I read things like this, and I realize that you know, uh, for some people, justice is a monetary opportunity to uh, live uh, a life that, that other people are getting to live. 
uh, they feel deprived of because of their circumstances, because of their lack of education, lack of opportunity. And I think that when you, you, you talk about these things, this is where Anglos really back up real quick and say, hey, you know, uh, it's not about money. Money won't fix this problem. And, 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 uh, and I, you know, so, so again, we're back to the depravity of our hearts to say, oh, you know, I, I'd rather protect our pocketbook than really help you and bring about true justice. Uh, but I don't know the answer, ultimate answer to that. I, like I said, there's so much debate on that, so much disagreement within the white community and black community. But I do know this, that when we see uh, people uh, excluded uh, from educational opportunities and from being able to uh, get the jobs they need to take care of themselves. When they live in poverty, we could, it's so easy for us to say it's their fault instead of saying, how do we help them? That's yeah. true justice. Yeah. True justice is when our hearts are turned towards them and saying, how can we truly help them so that they stop having to live the way that they have found themselves living as a result of how we have constructed our culture. And, uh, and truly, uh, as some people call this institutional or systemic racism, uh, truly we have, as a majority culture, created a system that benefits us and disadvantages others. And I think that justice is where we collectively say we are going to do everything we can to reconstruct our culture so that people have the opportunities that they deserve and the dignity that they serve as human beings. That is beautiful, Steve. I think that you you, you did answer it, uh, and uh, uh, I, I couldn't have put it any better than what you just did. My last question for you, and uh, uh, the one that excites me the most, because this is, this is my pursuit. In doing this, uh, you know, uh, where we showcase, for a lack of a better word, uh, in, implicit racial bias in today's society. Uh, you know, I, I did a show the other day, a, a mini-sode, a, a mini as I call them, and it was uh, concerning a mayoral candidate for St. Pete who uh, told members of the audience, and, I, and, you know, it was obvious based on what he said that they were African-Americans. He said that if they didn't like the way that things were in America, that they could go back to Africa. And, uh, you know, uh, just uh, an incendiary comment, one that he wow. cannot suck back in. You know, once it's out, it's out, and it was caught. Yeah. Uh, it was it was put, put all over the news. And, wow. you, know, it, it, you know, those kind of things keep, you know, it's almost bad. It, it never fully heals if you keep picking at it. And right. when it does finally heal, there's a scar there. And so my my final question is, how do we pursue reconciliation? How is that something that can be achievable, especially for us who are followers of Jesus, who have been given the ministry of reconciliation? And yes, yeah. I mean, that's beseeching people to come back to God, who has reconciled us all. But how do we pursue reconciliation with other people, especially those who have suffered those injustices? You know, that story just breaks my heart. Because, again, like I said, this is what racism has done to us, that even though 
none of us today own slaves or none of us today are living under uh, Jim Crow laws, black codes. Uh, the, the vestiges of the past still lives in our hearts, into our souls. It's ingrained, engraved in us. And, uh, yeah. How do we pursue this? Well, I think that the thing that I, I just speak personally here for a few minutes because, of course, the first thing we have to do is have God change our hearts personally before we can even pursue it. Otherwise, we're just making political hay out of this. You know, it's all about winning. And the way that we define winning is whose side we're on. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, when we begin to talk about how do we pursue this, it comes to the point where you say, what have I done that I need to make right? Uh, and I need to look deeper than just, well, you know, I didn't own slaves. I, I need to look deeper into what have I thought and what have I believed and what have I said or what have I been silent about that I need to speak to today? You know, I think about when Michael Brown was uh, killed and, um, you know, the thing about that is, is that people began to examine his life to say, well, you know, is he this nice guy that his, his mother said or, you know, does he have some dark seam in him and they found out about the, you know, the liquor store and all that stuff. And all of a sudden he became the anti-hero rather than the the victim of something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and you know what that does is it feeds the narrative that we want uh, our narrative. You know we 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 uh, we say well that makes it okay. I mean yeah it's sad that he's dead but it makes it okay because he wasn't a good guy after all. And you know that's we've gone off the justice path at that point. We've got to stop playing the narrative games and say you know what am I thinking. This is, a, this is a young man with life potential, and he's dead now. And uh, and he's dead in a situation that just blows my mind. And I think about the, the, the man shot up in Minneapolis and Freddie Gray. And, you know, you go through all these stories and say, this is incredible. How can we continually play the narrative over and over again that somebody that these people somehow, because their life was less worthy, it's okay that they're dead. And uh, is it okay that uh, uh, the African-American community has no economic opportunities uh, to get out of poverty? So they, you know, yeah, it's okay because they do drugs, because they push drugs. You know, we, we start finding the narrative that excuses all this stuff. We've got to stop telling these narratives and repeating them as if they are proof that there is a inferior race among us, uh, as if race is an expl- explanation for failure and uh, and gives us a sense of a uh, boost in our own egos, uh, which is a very sad way of making ourselves feel better. Hmm. So, 
I, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm working on this. I, you know, and this is the place where you surrender yourself to the Lord. Say, Lord, if there's thoughts going through my mind that are just unworthy of you, because these are the people you created. These are the people that you died for on the cross. If, if I'm thinking on them, uh, if I am harboring fear towards them or superiority towards them, God, you're going to have to knock it out of me because there's no way I'm going to become able to even engage in this process of bringing justice as long as I feel the way I do. Wow. Damn. First off, I just want to thank you for the time that you have given to being on our show today. And I'm going to ask you to pray. Uh, uh, pray because at the end of the day, uh, what we want is reconciliation. Uh, we want uh, for justice to be something that comes from the heart of God and not something that uh, we can, you know, conjure up in our own thinking. And, uh, you know, and, and we do want to expose and rebuke and refute uh, implicit racial bias as we see it today. Uh, but uh, all of that has to come as God shines his light on that, as he convicts by his spirit, and as he softens our hearts towards uh, what you just said, uh, sometimes harboring uh, fear or superiority or anything, you know, unless God changes us, we will never change. And so we, uh, we, we need him in order to be able to do that. And so would you pray for everybody that's listening today that uh, either may be affected by it or has caused the effect of it, and would you pray that God would would intervene and uh, do what only He could do concerning uh, this 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 epidemic that I call racism? Okay. Yes. And Father, thank you for being close to us. I'm sure, Father, when you look at your creation, if it wasn't for the fact that you were loved that you would find a lot of reasons just to destroy us. And this is one of them. We have treated each other with such disdain, both ways, which brought grief on each other, robbed each other of dignity, humanity, wished each other will, ill, and um, denied your reign over us. I pray, Father, that you would change our hearts and minds, that you would give us the kind of love for each other that you had for us when you sent Jesus to the cross, when you took the death penalty on yourself on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you. We need to be reconciled to each other. We have no power to do so apart from you. I pray that our hearts would be turned towards this so that we would beseech you beg you to take away our racism, to take away our prejudice, to take away the barriers that we have created in our minds and in our culture that hurt others and hurt ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being a guest today on our show. Uh, for everybody that's listening, please go out there on Amazon or uh, you know, try to find it at a local bookstore, uh, the book that Steve was talking about, The Key to Deep Change, 
experiencing spiritual transformation by facing unfinished business. Uh, Steve, I know that you will be uh, asked to be uh, on the show again, but uh, for today, we are grateful, and uh, we will talk soon. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you for letting me be with you. Yes, sir. All right. Blessings on you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.